This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Let's head down to Washington now and check in with Tom Orlick. He is the chief economist for Bloomberg Economics. He joins us from our 99.1 studio there in the nation's capital. Uh, his piece today, I think, caught both of our attention. Uh, Carol Masser, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the headline says it all. What's worse than a trade war? An actual war. <laughs> Investors, economists starting to really circle up around this idea of what the economic implications could be if we are in for a sustained global conflict here. Tom, thank you so much for being with us. So how do you get your arms around something like this? Uh, so I think the first thing to say, uh, Jason, um, is that clearly this is a moment of risk, but it's also a moment of heightened uncertainty. Um, it's possible we're going to get a significant retaliation from Iran, and that's going to escalate the situation it's also possible that a weakened Iran, an isolated Iran, um, is just going to have to accept getting a bloody nose, a very bloody nose from the United States. And in a month's time, this is going to be old news and we're all going to be worried about something else. Um, but for us, when we're thinking about the potential risks, really we're thinking about oil. And we're thinking about the way higher oil prices could start feeding through uh, into weaker global growth at a moment where there's certainly some optimism, there seems to be a trade truce, global central banks did a bunch of easing, business surveys are looking more solid, but the global economy remains in a somewhat fragile state. And what's interesting, what I love about this story, uh, Tom, is that this isn't the global oil economy that we had maybe you know, a few decades ago or even 10 years ago. And part of that is because, you know, of the U.S. production of energy assets. I mean, things have changed dramatically. Yeah, that's completely right, Carol. Um, I mean, if we go back to the 1970s, the 1980s, the global economy was running on oil and the U.S., the kind of the mainstay, the main driver of global growth, was an oil importer. So at that point in time, spikes in oil prices were really extremely significant and extremely negative news for the U.S. and also for global growth. And here we are in 2019, uh, and the picture really looks very different um, for a few reasons. Um, the two which I would highlight are, firstly, the economy is just less energy intensive than it used to be we think about the big companies out there right now, the Googles, Facebooks, Amazons of the world, these are not by and large energy intensive companies. Um, and then the second very significant reason, which I think you, you highlighted yourself, Carol, um, is the US shale revolution. Right. And what that means, and we saw that this coming through in today's US trade data, is just that the US is much less dependent on oil imports. Uh, and so what that means when we run this through our model is, Yes, a spike in oil prices would be a big negative for global growth. We think if oil prices went up to $100 a barrel, big jump from where we are now, but not, not impossible, that would shave perhaps 0.3% off of global GDP. Um, but 
because of that reduced energy intensity, because of the US's reduced dependence on oil imports, the drag would be much less significant than it would be in the past. And it's not just, of course, on the US, but as, right. you, as you remind yeah. us, is that with a much more resilient US economy, it's a smaller blow to the rest of the world. I think that is also very key. Yeah, I think that's right as well, Carol. Um, and of course, when we think about the global picture, we also have to think about a lot of variation at the national level. We've got countries like India, countries like Turkey, countries like Korea, uh, which are very significant oil importers. If we see prices spiking, these are the countries which are going to take a significant blow. Um, at the same time, if the U.S. remains resilient, if the U.S. consumer remains in play as a significant driver of global growth, that's going to provide a buffer. Well, and it is interesting to sort of go that level down and also to draw these parallels as you guys do in this piece, Tom, between sort of the trade war and the, you know, the potential and the uncertainty around a, a, a hot war, as it were, however long that may last and however long the uncertainty may last, that there are economic ripple effects, essentially, that go beyond the oil market. And some of that goes to capital spending. And, you know, we were talking mm -hmm. about this in, in a more of an earnings related conversation with Gina Martin Adams. Is there modeling done on that yet? Or how do you uh, anticipate sort of those ripple effects? I think that's a really interesting question, uh, Jason. Um, and the the way I'd answer it is by drawing an analogy um, with the situation the global economy faced in 2019, when it, the trade war was very much the focus of attention. Um, now, in the trade war, the tariffs were a significant drag on growth. But an even bigger drag on growth came from the uncertainty. Right. And that's the capital spending decisions you mentioned. It's the hiring decisions. It's businesses saying, you know what? If the next day is going to bring a tweet which is going to break my supply chain or block my access to the Chinese market, um, then I'm not going to make that investment. I'm not going to hire that additional worker. And what our analysis suggests is actually the uncertainty was a bigger drag on global growth last year than the tariffs were. Um, and I think now the concern is that we could be facing an analogous situation in 2020. Right. All maybe right. Iran doesn't retaliate, maybe nothing happens, but that geopolitical uncertainty is going to be there, and maybe that's going to be the drag on capital spending, the drag on hiring. All right. Well, it's great analysis and obviously very timely. Tom Orlick, Chief Economist for Bloomberg Economics and one of the authors of a, really a must-read piece of research on the terminal, What's Worse Than a Trade War, An Actual War. He it's perspective, right? And maybe it explains certainly why we're seeing the market reaction that we're getting or lack right. thereof. So I think it's really important. Speaking of security, we got some M&A news today in that world. The IT services company and consulting giant, we're talking about Accenture buying Symantec's cybersecurity services business uh, from Broadcom. Let's get more on the deal that, and also really the challenges in the growing business uh, when it comes to cybersecurity. Kelly Bissell is global lead of security at Accenture, joining us uh, on the phone from Washington, D.C. Kelly, nice to have you here with us. Tell us a little bit about, uh, about this deal today. Well, thanks for having me on the call. I, this is a great deal for our clients because it brings two really big global businesses, cybersecurity businesses together that have been in this market for a long time together to offer services to clients that uh, don't exist today. And so tell us about what those services are because it, it does feel like 
everybody knows Kelly these days that cyber is a threat. There are conferences on it. We host conferences on it and participate. <laughs> but where does the rubber meet the road here, and what are people actually doing to combat this? Yeah, that's that's right. All businesses are struggling to protect against these increased cyber attacks, and I think today these days we're all aware of that. And and really, what clients need are the ability to to protect against their whole business from if you're a oil and gas company from the refinery plant to the trading system to the plants that they have all the way up to the gas pump and that's what this acquisition for Accenture does it brings our industry capability with their efficient platform okay so the kind of companies that are going to be tapping into this are who yeah, they're, they're, they're all kinds of companies. There are, there are governments around the world. There are mm -hmm. banks, pharmaceutical companies, retailers. Um, really, those are our client mix all around the world. And so, Kelly, help us understand the, the strategy here, because you guys have been pretty acquisitive across the board. Accenture uh, has been. Is this something where the market's moving so fast that you need to sort of build, uh, buy rather than build? Is there building going on as well? More acquisitions to come? I just asked you like 17 questions, but uh, help <laughs> yep. us understand the strategy here. Well, it's, uh, you know, our strategy has always been looking at the unique offerings that uh, we might find in the marketplace with boutiques or others that would add to our mix. But this was a very different acquisition. This one was a global cybersecurity managed function that uh, was part of the Broadcom acquisition, as you know. Right. And, um, you know, when, when they bought it, it was part of their Broadcom strategy to retain that, that software, software business. And the services really didn't fit in their strategy, and, and I thought it was a great opportunity for Accenture to, to really, uh, you know, add to our portfolio and serve clients in a better way. I guess what I'm curious, too, is we talk um, a lot about cybersecurity, certainly here. As Jason mentioned, we even host programs here at Bloomberg. But what's interesting is I feel like there are a lot of smaller players. There are larger players like yourself. What are the schemes that hackers are moving increasingly towards? In other words, you know, how are hackers operating? What are the methods that they're doing? I mean, obviously you guys have to keep up to date with all of this. What kinds of threats are we increasingly seeing to customers? Well, you know, the threats are wide and varied. And and I'll tell you that it, it used to be that companies would try to just secure their corporate office, but that's not where the risk is. That's not where the crown jewels are of the company. They're out in the operations, they're at the stores, you know, they're in the plants, the manufacturing plants and so forth. And and really what our clients need is security across their whole enterprise. And that is what this does for us. And so just going back to the M&A strategy briefly, Kelly, more yeah. deals to come in this area or is this of enough size that you feel pretty content for the moment? Well, you know, this is, I think, the 10th acquisition that Accenture Security has done in the last four years. And um, I'm always on the lookout for the market for opportunities that would help serve our clients in a better way. And uh, so we'll see what happens in the future. And I do wonder, too, you know, kind of what is the next level of cybersecurity? Kind of where do we need to focus our efforts going forward? Well, that's right. So it's our plans. We've, we've been working on this for about a year and a half to really transform the market of cybersecurity as opposed to a one-size-fits-all where the service provider 
serves a bank or a pharmaceutical company the exact same way, we don't think that works. And to really understand how a company works in the internal operations, we feel like that we've got to build cybersecurity through the lens of industry across that enterprise. And that is where we're going with this. And that is very different from the marketplace. All right. Well, congratulations on the deal. Thanks for telling us a little bit about it. Kelly Bissell is global lead of the security practice at Accenture. He joined us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Always interesting to see deals get done, especially of scale, these two public companies. Right. Um, and also always interesting to see this was essentially, and I was glad to hear Kelly break this down, this notion that Broadcom buys Symantec has to figure out kind of what what businesses it wants to be in, what businesses it doesn't, and then and wants to get out of the service business. And Accenture essentially says, "Hey, we're in the service business." Right, exactly. Like, yeah, we'll take that back. Yeah, actually, we'll take that. <laughs> um, and a reminder that companies continue to do deals to yeah. kind of fine tune their services and to be able to offer more services to their customers. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Earlier, though, Bloomberg Surveillance's Tom Keen caught up with former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan, and, of course, they talked about monetary policy. The very definition of Fed speak is it shouldn't exist, period. It's uh, a foreign language to everybody other than the Fed, and it's an uh, undecipherable language when it gets to Fed people. And... Uh, uh, it's you know meant as a joke, but not wholly. Mm -hmm. If I look at the parameters that we deal with at Bloomberg every day, we have risk where we can establish probabilities. This wonderful thing, uncertainty. I think of the great Peter Bernstein here writing about this, or even Douglas North and this strange thing, ambiguity. With all of our communication and with all of our different voices, do we risk having almost too many messages? And that versus a more cohesive message, as we saw in your era? No, not necessarily. I think the more that people talk about it and interact, uh, the more likely you'll get a consensus in the political system. Our problem is, uh, is not what to do. We know what to do. We do what the Swedes did. But if you take a look at what the, the various different things that they did to resolve their problems with exactly the same problem we have now, you would say, no way that goes on in the United States. Can the United States of America be held equivalent to Sweden? Is there, with our diversity and with our, our scope and size of four time zones, how can there we are, be equated uh, to Sweden? I, I, I grant there are major differences. The principles are the same. Mm -hmm. Defined benefit versus defined contribution. Those are accounting issues, and they stipulate basically mm -hmm. that you can't spend, I mean, for defined contributions, you cannot spend more than you've brought in. If you could arrange to do that in the United States, uh, that would do wonders to our current position, mm -hmm. our trillion dollar deficit, as well as the future. I'm, I'm hesitant to believe that we're able to do that, and I'd like to see that we can do it, but until we do it, I'm, I'm concerned about the future. Where's the inflation today? Well, the problem basically is that's not, that is not the question. 
the question basically, what, what uh, the forecasts of the monetary authorities are with respect to inflation, or with respect to economic growth, and any of the other things that are involved, is a secondary question. To be sure, a critical requirement of uh, a governor of the Federal Reserve is to be a good economic forecaster. In fact, I remember back when I started at the Fed, uh, I recognized that the only particular skill I could bring to the table was I had a real understanding of how the economy worked and how the data system worked. And uh, I found that very useful in making my judgments, mm -hmm. not the rest of the board, uh, of how I thought the system ought to be moving. And of course, that was former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan talking earlier on Bloomberg Television with our own uh, Tom Keene, of course, of Bloomberg Surveillance. So interesting to get his perspective, talk about monetary policy, because we are certainly living in an interesting time when it comes to a very low rate environment for many nations. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, we want to get into our next story because uh, it feels like 2020 already turning out to be the year of crises. And when it comes to China's next crisis, well, that might be brewing in Taiwan's upcoming election. So let's talk about this story uh, in the magazine, in the upcoming uh, edition of the magazine out later on newsstands uh, this week. And when it... Uh, Let's bring in uh, Jillian Goodman, politics editor at Bloomberg Business Week, along with Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. So, Jillian, set the scene because uh, I think we think of China, China and their crisis, we think of Hong Kong right now, but it sounds like there could be another area that it has to be concerned about. Well, Taiwan has a presidential election coming up, what is it, Tuesday? It's January 11th, um, and mm -hmm. especially with the tensions in Hong Kong, I mean, it certainly raised the stakes on, you know, not a, not a tense situation in Taiwan as well. Certainly, there are uh, factions in Taiwan that would like to see more separation from Beijing, uh, and there are other factions that would like to see uh, the the territory grow closer. And, uh, you know, in light of the tensions with Hong Kong, I mean, all of that is just really you know, escalated. So how do you sort of frame a story like this in the magazine, Joel? Yeah, first of all, January 11th is Saturday, uh, not yeah. Tuesday. But so it, it is literally... Sooner um, even than I thought. Sooner than you think, always. And the, I think the thing that when we looked at this actually months ago, um, we said, look, actually, you know, this Hong Kong thing's for real, but this Taiwanese thing actually might have an even greater impact because of Taiwanese sort of precarious place in the in the global world and actually the global economy now in the trade war. And so we said, who are the players in this? And Matt Campbell, who who's the lead writer on the story, um, dug into it with Debbie Wu in Taipei to sort of uh, reveal that story to us. And it really centers on the incumbent, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, who is... It was really interesting and has sort of been on our radar for a bit, in part because of, for equality reasons, um, Taiwan has been very progressive and sort of gave rights in, in the region. You know, it's really the only place in Southeast Asia that has really legislated on that matter um, against Han Kyo Yu, who actually represents uh, the KMT party, which historically has been the more sort of... Uh, anti-China one historically yeah. and yet has amid the trade war become almost the closer to the the uh, 
the Chinese sort of uh, uh, almost having a relationship that's unprecedented in in Taiwan's history. And why do you think Jillian, you know, you work so much on all the political coverage. I mean, this is something that it feels like has gone relatively unnoticed uh, globally, at least in in a certain sector. Mm -hmm. Again, Hong Kong, maybe because of the violence and and Hong Kong being a better known uh, locality. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, Taiwan doesn't really have relations with anybody yeah. in the world. And it's because of this awkward uh, status with regards to China. China still regards it as part of the mainland. Taiwan does not regard itself as part of the mainland. And any country that wants to do business with China needs to fall on the China side right. of that arrangement, which has, ma which has made Taiwan very isolated economically, diplomatically. And so, yes, of course, Hong Kong has made a lot of noise in the last year um, that, that has not been reflected in Taiwan per se. But it's also just they don't talk to anybody. Yeah. Really. There's so much history in this in this story in particular. But I do mm -hmm. wonder about like the, the people of Taiwan. Where are they? Are we increasingly seeing pushback like we're seeing in Hong Kong when it comes to Chinese rule? Well, that's what this election is ultimately going to yeah. be about. Um, you know, one of the pieces of artwork that accompanies this story actually shows uh, an independence flag, which is basically mm -hmm. um, something that you know wouldn't wouldn't really have been probably as prominent as a as a matter, if not for what's happened in Hong Kong, right? Um, and you know, just one thing that I also find interesting, just to give you a sense of just how isolated uh, Taiwan is in the middle of this, is you know the U.S. You kind of think of as uh, the main ally, right? But the the U.S. doesn't even have an embassy. In Taiwan. Taipei, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. They actually have what's called the American Institute, which is sort of allows it to have an arm's length, and yet, you know, you can still get a visa there. There's still U.S. Marines there, mm -hmm. but it really shows you that there it, it operates in sort of this little gray area that, as they point out, amazingly, kind of came to a head a couple years ago with Made in Taiwan as uh, one of the pieces you know that shows up on right. things that are manufactured there and they it couldn't actually be exported to china without it saying comma china made in taiwan comma mm -hmm. china right so it really shows you why something that like an independence conversation could be so precarious the chinese side has indicated that what they would like is for it to be more like a hong kong arrangement so that there's one system in in uh, and two states effectively right right, right. So all of that will will be basically decided probably right. with the election on the Saturday. Election. I feel like it's tortured. Yeah. Like the relationship. For sure. Tortured. I mean, tortured would be one way to say it, I think. <laughs> right. And, you know, I, so this gets to your question of, you know, how do the people actually see, feel about it? Right. And so far, the incumbent has a pretty generous lead. So, so far, it seems like the status quo will probably remain. Yeah. Okay. Hong Kong is uh, from post. Yeah. That's right. So yeah, we got a yeah. boost yeah. from Hong Kong. Okay. Like that was talk about tailwind. Yeah, yeah a lot exactly. in this story. A must read. And another Matt Campbell story. That guy's the hardest working man in Hollywood. Absolutely. Joel Weber, Jillian Goodman. Thank you both so much. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is.
is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it's time for the drive to the close. Jim Russell with us, principal and portfolio manager for Ball and Gainer, uh, looking after more than $36 billion for clients. Joining us on the phone from Cincinnati. Happy New Year, Jim. Happy New Year to you, Jason. All right. So how happy is it for investors, at least in the short term, geopolitics really raising its head here? Market feels okay with that for the moment, but what do you make of it? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, we do think that the market was maybe uh, poised for a pause uh, right here at the uh, first few trading days of 2020. Uh, we had a ni- over a 9% increase in the fourth quarter uh, with a fair amount of momentum uh, over the last two months of the year. We thought that perhaps uh, some consolidation, some, some weakness for a few weeks uh, was probably in the cards. Certainly, we did not foresee military action in the Middle East. I, I think that gives investors an excuse to perhaps pull back just a little bit. We did think the, the sentiment as we hit 1231.18, uh, excuse me, 1231.19 was beginning to be a little bit too frothy, and uh, we're almost uh, glad to see just a little bit of a pullback. We think it's the pause that refreshes. Okay, so we're just talking about levels here, right, and valuation. Right. So we just want to, you're saying fundamentals still look good for 2020? I think they look reasonably good. I think they look good enough. Carol, I think that, uh, frankly, 92% of last year's uh, S&P 500 ascent was due to P.E. expansion. Only 8% was due to uh, earnings gains. And so we really saw a major revaluation of stocks last year with the Fed acting three times, with inflation being low, with interest rates being being well-behaved. So uh, we do think that earnings are going to come back into the picture this year. We can see a scenario this year that PEs either maintain uh, kind of this 19 times trailing, 18 times forward types of level uh, or contract just a little bit. We are looking for modest gains. We're not looking for anything gangbusters uh, in 2020. And so where do you look to put money from a sector perspective here, Jim, in this type of market that's a little bit uncertain, but not a, a defensive market, it sounds like? Uh, right. Uh, we are uh, equity income growth investors. And so we do seek uh, rising dividend streams in the companies that we position our investors in. Uh, we do feel, feel that the financials have a very good profile in terms of income growth. Uh, as many of the larger cap banks are overcapitalized, we think many of the industrial names are also uh, perhaps well-positioned in a weaker macro environment uh, that we see. So selectivity is absolutely key with the markets, again, being at these high PE levels. Uh, So it is a little bit of a stock picker's market. Uh, I think broad themes and broad sector positioning is going to be difficult to come by because we do think that even within a sector, there will be uh, a fair amount of disparity between winners and losers. Where don't you want to be in 2020? That's a great question, too, Carol. Uh, that's probably as important, if not more important, the question. Uh, we do we can see a scenario uh, in this year that inflation rises just a little bit, especially if oil stays, let's just say, at an elevated level. Uh, wages are on the move just a little bit. 
Uh, I think the Fed wants to see a higher inflation rate. So we think interest rates perhaps start to move a little bit higher here. Uh, we think the bond proxies uh, of the utilities, broadly speaking, the REITs, broadly speaking, selected staples companies, broadly speaking, with the high yields attached to them, where people were hiding uh, uh, from geopolitical um, uh, mainly domestic uh, uncertainty last year, other, you know, China trade uncertainty, et cetera. Uh, we think those will be the places that perhaps uh, perhaps uh, move move a little bit lower this year as investors seek uh, things other than yield. Uh, and, and in a higher interest rate environment, bond proxies simply do not trade well. And as you think about geopolitics, you know, as as you mentioned, this was not necessarily the threat that most people were thinking about. Are there other things in the world you worry about? Uh, there's always a number of things to worry about. I think earnings growth will be, again, modest, call it 5%, 6%, 7%. You know, what if the China deal uh, becomes unwound or we find ourselves uh, perhaps in a uh, either a uh, political, economic, or geopolitical situation with China. I think you cannot overlook uh, uh, North Korea. I don't think that you can overlook uh, borderline recessionary conditions in Europe. Uh, certainly, uh, the impeachment and 2020 election looms large in terms of event risk uh, this year. So I think there's a number of things, maybe not quite as dramatic as the wall of worry as we were to sit here on the 7th of January of 2018. Uh, maybe not that dramatic, but there are always things to, uh, to be concerned with. And uh, there's always unknown unknowns. Uh, there will be new things that we're not even aware of that will surface as market issues um, as we roll through 2020. Uh, so uh, we do think it's a little bit more of a defensive market, and we think that income uh, from the equity markets will matter in terms of uh, figuring in the total return. Hey, Jim, just got about a minute left here. Speaking of income and income inequalities in particular, right, which has mm -hmm. been certainly a big topic of the last couple of years, and rightfully so, mm -hmm. when you look at mm -hmm. You know, the top few percent getting wealthier and then many Americans still struggling despite labor statistics that talk about a giant, uh, you know, a tight labor market. You work with, you know, high net worth individuals. And I'm just curious, you know, what they feel is, you know, their responsibility to making things perhaps more equal around the world. Just got about 40 seconds here. Yeah, Carol, those are just great questions uh, as a human being. And uh, I would tell you that many of our clients are concerned about uh, some of those trends that you'd mentioned and articulated so clearly. Um, tax reform, uh, certainly uh, greater charitable uh, donations, uh, other social causes. Many of our uh, clients are deeply ingrained emotionally and financially in trying to help right that ship. So I would say that uh, people are not just standing by, but uh, being active in the political process, as well as uh, donating and uh, volunteering uh, as uh, needs arise here in the Cincinnati area, and I think uh, right. more generally. All right. We're going to leave there. Jim Russell, Principal Portfolio Manager, Paul and Gaynor. Thank you so much. He joined us on the phone from Cincinnati. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.